Hear now the word of God as we have it in 1 Peter chapter 3. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, who were brought to safety through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You may be seated. You may have noticed on the sheet that contains the outline for the message this morning, there is a QR code. If you do not know what a QR code is, ask someone under 12. Uh, They'll tell you. Uh, But there's a follow-up article that you can read that concerns much of what we're talking about today, and it's by Kevin DeYoung. It's it's very helpful. Uh, Don't look at it now, please. Uh, Take it home and uh, read that article this week. The question that Kevin DeYoung addresses in that article and that we're looking at this morning is how do we as Christians live in a culture that is increasingly antagonistic to the Christian faith? How do we do that? And there are a number of ways, of course, that we can respond. You could, for example, uh, do what one teenager told me she had done years ago. Uh, She said, uh, no one at school or at work knows that I'm a Christian, so I'm not being persecuted. I said, is that intentional? She said, yes. I don't think that's the best method to deal with antagonism against our faith, but but the other side might be just as bad, and that is the person that probably you've run across in your Christian life who is a bulldozer Christian, who just runs across everybody in their path with the gospel, with the Bible, in such an antagonistic and undelightful way that no one comes to faith through their witness. So you can run and hide or, or you can bulldoze over other people, but what Peter sets before us in this passage is a third way, a much better way. Now, you may have noticed as I read through the text, there is an awful lot in this passage that we will not address today. There's some very Uh, mysterious phrases that Peter uses and many things that are worthy of your examination, but we're just going to focus 
on what Peter says in verses 15 and 16. He's talking about living out the Christian life, and he's talking about it in the context of suffering in a world, a culture that's antagonistic to the gospel. And look at what he tells us to do in verse 15. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Always be ready to make a defense. Now, how do we do that in our day and in our culture? We live in a particular place, a particular time. Uh, There are particular challenges that are coming against the gospel. There are particular understandings in the people that you know that may or may not be related to what they've read in the Scriptures, or they may have no knowledge of Christ at all. So how do we fulfill what Peter's uh, seeking us to do here in verse 15? Well, let's take it apart bit by bit. He says, always be prepared. You know what preparation is? You have to be prepared for lots of things in life. Well, you need to prepare yourself to defend the truth of the gospel. And we'll get into the details of that in a moment. But there's an action that takes place before the defense. Any army worth their salt would be prepared to defend their territory. You must be prepared. And you are making a defense. Other translations say give an answer, but uh, the defense idea is helpful. Uh, We're defending something. And the word that Peter chooses there in the Greek language, apologia, actually is a wonderful word that we use as apologetics. You may or may not have come across that word. It It means to defend something. It's not an apology in the sense of, I'm sorry. It's an apology in the sense of a defense, whether that be in a courtroom or simply sitting down over a cup of coffee with someone uh, telling them what Jesus came to do. That's the defense, the apologetic. And you are to do that to anyone And so, obviously, you'd have to have different tactics and and different ways of thinking about defending the faith to a a four-year-old child, to a a young college student, or to an older person who has a a worldview that may be very different than yours. You have to be prepared for anyone. And the attitude is with gentleness and respect. Gentleness. Respect. Respect. You may have heard that the only place in Scripture where Jesus uh, reveals something about Himself as far as His uh, character is in Matthew chapter 11 where He says, Learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And so if we are called to defend the faith with gentleness and respect, we are called in, in a sense to be like Jesus, gentle and lowly, humble tender, thoughtful. That gets rid of the bulldozer idea, doesn't it? But what is it that we're supposed to be talking about? Well, particularly, Peter says, the reason for the hope that is within you. Now, hope is a theme we've seen in 1 Peter all the way back in chapter 1. He talked in chapter 1, verse 3, about a living hope, the hope that we have. And it's not hope as wishful thinking, uh, the kind of hope you hope you're going to get ice cream after dinner. Uh, No, this is a hope that is grounded in the certainty of the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. 
And that's the focus of our hope, the reason for the hope within us, that it is a patient, deliberate, disciplined confidence in all that Christ has done. That's our hope. Hebrews chapter 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. God will do it. And so that's the focus of our defense. And as Peter says here, some will speak evil against you, some will slander you, some will misunderstand what you're saying and how you're living, but that's okay. He says, do not fear them, even those who cause you to suffer, you will be blessed. You'll be blessed because you belong to Jesus Christ, because you're being faithful to Him. So in short, what a Christian is called to do in this passage in verse 15 here is that we are to defend the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in such a way that looks Christ-like with gentleness and yet stands with, with great authority based on the hope, the confident hope, that all that God has done in Christ Jesus is true and will come to pass and is now coming to pass in our lives. But to look at that a little more closely, I've divided it out into two categories. There's two categories. There's the content of what it is that we're talking about, that we're defending, that we're focusing on, and then there's the manner uh, in which we do that. So the what and the how. And each one of those is subdivided, as you can see on the outline. But the content is primarily centered on that phrase that Peter uses, the hope the hope that we have within you. And there's three parts to the content. The first is the most obvious. What is the faith? What is it that you're defending? Now, many Christians, uh, if you ask them, well, what do you believe? And they'll start with something like this. They'll say, well, my God is like this, or my faith is like so. That's not where we should begin. Now, truly, it is our faith once uh, we belong to Christ, uh, we believe in Christ, it's truly me that's believing, but it's not like decorating your living room. You don't go to the stores and say, well, let's see, I want a blue couch, and I want a, a yellow rug, and I, I want pink walls, and I want a green lamp, and I want, that, that's not how you build your faith. That's an ugly living room, I know. That could be an ugly faith. What Jude tells us is that we believe the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. And the primary focus of the hope that lies within you is not some designer faith that you've concocted in your mind, piecing together this and that. It's the faith that was once and for all delivered by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. It's what always has been believed everywhere. Now, I know the church over there and the church over there and the Christian at work all have some slightly different doctrines that they believe. There are differences on some of the minor points. What's the gospel? Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's one brief statement of the gospel. Christ suffered for your sins. He died on the cross in your place. He was your substitute so that the wrath of God against your sins was laid on Him. 
Not only that, but he was the perfect righteous one. He had no a reason that he should suffer at all aside. So why should you complain about your suffering even if you're righteous? Christ, the righteous one, suffered. That's not Peter's main point, but it's a good point. Christ, as the righteous one, suffered on behalf of you and your sins, and then he also grants to you his righteousness. Your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. His blood atones for your sin, His righteousness is imputed to you, and you are declared righteous by the justifying grace of God. You will be sanctified whether you like it or not, and you will be holy, and you will be therefore able to be in His presence forever. That's the gospel. And that's the hope that you have, that you are to defend, that you are to stand on. That's the first aspect of the content. Now, where do you learn all that? In the Bible. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's all you need to know. This is the content. This is the hope. This is what we have. This is what we possess. Because God, by His grace, has given it to us and opened your eyes to see it. And the Bible is the source of this content. And the Bible itself needs to be spoken of and, in a sense, defended. You have to say that the Bible is where I understand these things from. It's the Bible that reveals to me Jesus Christ, but the Bible itself is the Word of God. And I must say that that is so, even to a world that would say, well, that's your truth, not mine. This is the Creator God's revelation to us of what He wants us to know. And so we defend the Scriptures Or maybe a better way to say it is we assert the authority of the Scriptures. We don't really need to defend them. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the 19th century, uh, once said this about the Bible. He says, the Bible is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. You simply let the lion out of the cage and the lion will defend himself. And so what we do as far as content of our defense of the faith is we open the Word of God which reveals to us Jesus Christ, that He is the righteous one who died in the place of sinners, and the Bible, the lion, defends itself as the Word of God goes forth. That's our content, the first aspect of our content. But there's a second aspect that's just as important, and that's recognizing who we are. And again, the Bible is what tells us who we are. The Bible tells us that we are made in the image of God, and yet in that wonderful image, and in so many ways like God, Adam and Eve, the first created human beings, fell into sin. And so the Bible tells us not only the content of the gospel, but the reason for the gospel is that we're sinners. Now, recognize as you begin to share this kind of content with unbelievers that they will be antagonistic to that. You sit down with someone over coffee and you say, do you realize that you're a wretched sinner destined for hell? It's probably not a good opening line, but it is content that needs to be shared. The Bible tells us not only what God has done for us in Christ, but also tells us who we are. And that means who we were before we were saved 
and who we are now in Christ Jesus. So when you are making a defense of the faith, when you are, uh, as it were, given an apologetic, you are saying, here is God in Jesus Christ, here's what He has done, He has done this for me and to me, you are a redeemed sinner who now has your eyes open to see the truth of the gospel, but you're talking to someone who doesn't. And it's so important that you recognize that. What does the Scripture say about the unredeemed sinner? Ephesians 2, they are separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, without hope, without God in the world. They're hopeless. They have no reason to hope. And as you are declaring to them the reason for the hope that lies within you, here's this huge gap that exists between you and them. You have to understand that. And not only that, that they have no hope, but their understanding is darkened. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is within them, because of the blindness of their heart. They're unable to see the truth, unable to know the truth. This is their condition. And so while you have this reason for hope that is within you, the person you're talking to, as delightful and as happy as they may seem, they are hopeless and blind and deaf and dumb. And they cannot see the truth. One writer has said that they are like a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that isn't there. There's no hope. And they may appear that they are filled with joy and life, but deep in the depths of their soul, they're in darkness. And so the tenderness and the patience that you bring to that setting is so important because this is where they are and this is who they are until the light of the gospel dawns upon them. Now, the Scripture tells us that and so much more. So we need to know who Christ is and what He has come to do the gospel. We need to know who we are as a redeemed believer, having had our eyes opened by the Lord Jesus Christ. But we need also very much to see that they're in darkness and they're blind and they're hopeless. And so what's our hope for them? Well, we need to know the third thing, how God works. Because you see, if we look at the situation of the glory of Jesus Christ and and the darkness of the human soul, we can say, who can be saved? Well, with man, that's impossible. With God, all things are possible. And the third thing we need to know then is how God works. And He works in wonderful ways through the very word that we are defending or the lion that we've let loose. Because the promise is that the word of God is sharp, powerful, living, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so the way in which God works is He takes His written word and He uses you and me, simple creatures, who simply open the Bible, who show people Christ, and in the depths of the darkness of their soul, the light of God shines in as the word is read and preached, and lights come on. And that's how God works. 
And the reason you have hope within you, the reason you can stand on the truth of the gospel is because God is not dependent upon you and your skill or your language ability or your understanding of even the depths of apologetical methods. He's just taking the Word of God and He's using that as a sharp sword, driving it into the souls of the unbeliever and using that to bring them to faith and repentance and Jesus. It's such a simple thing. And that's why you have hope, not only that Christ has saved you, but that same Christ who saves you by His Holy Spirit will take the written Word and put it in your mind and on your lips and he'll use that to bring someone else to faith in Jesus Christ. And if you can't even do that, just invite them to worship. Where the word preached powerfully, Romans 10, will go into the hearts of people, and they'll be changed. And all the things that the unbeliever stands upon, his own self-righteousness, his own method of looking at the world, his worldview will collapse under the authority of the declared Word of God. And that's why we have hope. Because it's not really up to us. Peter's talking to Christians who are in the midst of a horrible persecution. They're they're in all kinds of difficulties that are unimaginable for us. And he says, don't be afraid of standing for the gospel. It is the power of God. The hope that lies within you is not just that you are saved, but the way and the means that God used to save you and bring you to Christ is the same means that He will use through you to bring others to Himself. And so that's the content, really. It's knowing who Jesus is, what He has come to do. It's knowing who you are and who the unbeliever that you're talking to is. And it's knowing the power of God, how He works, what He does. And now quickly, the manner in which we do this, the the gentleness that Peter talks about this. How do we stand? Well, we stand on truth. Now, we've pretty much considered that in the first whole section, the content. That's truth. And as you speak with someone about the gospel of Jesus Christ, you must be convinced in your mind and heart that it is the truth, a truth with a capital T, the true truth. And this is not just what you believe, it's bigger than you. It's the faith once and for all delivered to the saints that has been believed by millions and millions of Christians down through the centuries who have given their lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just an idea a philosophy, or a religion. It's Jesus, the living Christ, and He's alive, and He dwells within you, and by His Spirit, He's enabling you to live the Christian life. It's truth. And so when you stand, you you stand on truth, biblical truth, even secular truth. There's truth out in the world, Because God has created the world. This is your Father's world. It's His world. And there's truth to be known, to be shared, to be seen. And so far as content went, you are studying the Bible. You're knowing what the Scripture says about God and man. You're knowing about how God works. You know who Jesus Christ is. And all of that then sums up that you're standing on the truth. 
You don't need to make up things. You don't even need to have all kinds of experiences that you can relate. Those can be helpful. But you're not just sharing your faith. You're sharing truth. It's bigger than you. You stand on the truth. And not only do you stand on the truth, you stand in a way that is humble and gentle. Now, this may seem hard because when you're standing on truth, you want to declare it with all authority and all power, and you might even raise your voice a little. But Peter says here to do it with gentleness and respect, Christ-like humility. Many passages that talk about the same thing. Just previously in chapter 2, Peter said we are to follow in Christ's steps in every way. And you know, of course, in the life of Christ, at times he was very, very bold, and at other times he was very, very gentle. They're not opposites. We need to stand on the truth with all boldness and gentleness. Colossians chapter 4, Paul says, let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer every person. Again, Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And so what are our methods? They're conversational, they're friendly, they're respectful, they're bold, they're confident, because the confidence and a hope and boldness is not in ourselves but in Christ. And putting those two together develops a characteristic then of, of a faithful apologetic, a faithful witness that is very much like Jesus. There are firm lines drawn what we believe, because it's the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. But there's a gentleness in the, in the presentation that understands that the unbeliever cannot see the truth unless God, by His regenerating grace, opens their eyes. There's a hopefulness, a prayerfulness, knowing that God works by His Spirit upon His Word and will bring people to Himself by His power. And there's a confidence that the truth declared, shared, lived, will be effectual to bring people to Jesus Christ. So we stand on the truth. We stand with this gentleness and respect, knowing very clearly, as Peter says, when we are reviled, we must not revile or threaten in return, but entrust ourselves to Him who judges justly, and yet not be surprised when we suffer for the faith. Again, the greater context of this passage reminds us that Peter is saying that you who are suffering for the faith of Jesus Christ might somehow begin to pull back in on yourselves and, and not be so outspoken in your faith. You might hide your Christianity so that you would not have to suffer for it. But Jesus himself, the purely righteous one, suffered on your behalf. Are you not also willing to suffer a little for him? And is it not Christ-like to be willing to stand for truth with all boldness and all gentleness? And if that leads to suffering, so be it. Peter's 
view here is that God may want that for you. Are you willing to suffer for the cause of Christ? Are you willing to be bold and gentle in your proclamation of truth? Are you willing to stand? Because that's the final point. When you stand, you stand, period, full stop. It's not really a biblical option to hide your faith. It's not a biblical option to pretend that you're not a Christian. It's not a biblical option to shade the truth a little bit so that it's not so offensive in the day and the culture of the person you're speaking to. What you must do and what Peter's urging us to do is to always be ready to be prepared to defend the gospel, to let the lion loose, to unsheath the sword, and let the gospel go forth. And if that means you will suffer, so be it. You're still blessed. You belong to Jesus Christ. Perhaps this last point may be the most difficult in our day. Standing for truth has never been easy, but as antagonism increases, so does the the possibility of suffering when you stand for the truth. And what are we standing on? The gospel, of course. Jesus Christ. Verse 18, everything else that the Bible tells us about Jesus Christ, we stand. But we need to stand in other places as well. The implications of the gospel, therefore, are often the points of attack. What does the Bible tell us about life? It's a gift of God. What does the Bible tell us about when life begins? At conception. Are you willing to stand on that truth? What does the Bible tell us about the nature of humanity? We're made in the image of God. What does the Bible tell us about sexuality? It tells us we're made male and female. Are you willing to stand on that truth? What does the Bible tell us about marriage? One man, one woman. Are you willing to stand on that truth? You see, the points of attack are not to be set aside as we stand for the gospel because the implications of the gospel are just as important. 500 years ago, Martin Luther said this. He says, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition, every portion of God's truth except precisely the little point that the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. It's where the battle rages the most that the loyalty of the soldier is proved. To be steady on the rest of the battlefield is mere flight and disgrace if the soldier flinches at the point of attack. And so we have to stand to always be ready to make a defense of the gospel in general and the particular implications of the gospel and to do so with a gentleness and a Christ-likeness that is very winsome knowing that the more we stand, the more we will suffer. But we are not called to ease in this life. We are not called to be resting contentedly, placidly. We have been brought into union with Jesus Christ. We're called to follow Him. We're called to serve Him. And part of that service is standing, defending the truth. 
It is by God's grace that he has given you the content of the gospel. You know who Jesus Christ is. You now know who you are, and you know how God works. He's worked in your life. He's working wonderfully in your life. Praise him for that. But because of what you know, this is how you must then live. You stand on the truth. You stand with gentleness and respect, and you stand. All the while prayerfully asking Jesus Christ to give you the strength. And he will do it because his desire for you is that you stand for truth. Will he not also enable you to do so? Let's pray for that. Our gracious Father and our God, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. We thank you that we have come to know you by that grace. Oh, Lord, we pray now that you will help us as we must stand in our day for these truths. Help us to know your scriptures, to know them so well, Lord, that they just come out of our mouths so quickly, readily, at every situation. And give us the gentleness of Jesus Christ, the humility to speak the truth in love, and to stand for him in such a way that he receives all the glory. This we ask in his holy name. Amen.